Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll ask God to bless our time tonight. Lord, we thank you so much that we can come together and sing your praises and study the Bible together at different levels, Lord. I pray that you'd bless our children as they uh, look at the Word, and as, as well as our teens and then our adult group tonight. But I just pray that we'd all be richly blessed by the time we spend in your Word and then the time we spend in prayer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 6 in your Bibles with me tonight. If you remember last week, we looked at Revelation chapter 6. And if you missed that and you want to go back, it really was a kind of a foundational lesson. So that recording is on Facebook. It's on YouTube. I'd encourage you to go back and take a look at last week. But if you remember, um, we begin and we'll start again in verse number 1, Revelation 6. Look with me at verse number one. And I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard as it were the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And then obviously in verse number three, you'll notice there's a second seal. Look down at verse number five, and there's the third seal. Verse number seven, and when he had opened the fourth seal. Verse number nine, and when he had opened the fifth seal. And then verse number 12, and I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. So let's remember what we discussed last time, and that is this, that the outline of Revelation chapter six, really I believe what you're looking at here is an outline of much of what is yet to come in the book of Revelation. So it's almost like chapter number six is giving us the table of contents, if you will. It's outlining what is yet to come. In Revelation chapter five, we saw that amazing scene in the throne room of heaven where all of the beasts and the four and 20 elders and the, the thousands of thousands are before the throne and they say, who is worthy to open the what? Open the, the book. And so there's this scroll, this book. They say, who is worthy? And who was worthy? They looked and they found nobody until coming on the stage is the Lord Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But he didn't look like a lion. He had the appearance of a lamb that was slain. And they cried and they worshiped the lamb who was slain. And they said, thou art worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And so what happens is the Lord Jesus Christ in the culmination of all of human history, he takes this, this book, this, this scroll, and there are seven seals on it. And each opening of a seal unfolds what is yet to come in the final, the final story, the final part of the saga of this planet Earth and God's creation. Now, the key concept tonight, if you're following along in your handout, is this. The first of, the, of the, the first six of the seven seals are describing this unfolding of the last days. So we mentioned them last week, but we didn't look at them in detail. We will do that tonight. We'll look at all six of these seals. Now, previously, though, we compared Revelation chapter 6 with these passages of Scripture and these concepts. And this was kind of a groundwork. So again, if you didn't catch this, you're going to need to go back and review or study it a little bit more. But we compared Revelation chapter 6 with some other key passages that, that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that foreshadowed what is unfolded in Revelation 6. And those were 
Daniel chapter 9 with Daniel's 70th week. Last week we looked at Daniel's 70th week. It'll get referenced again tonight, but that was a major theme. So understanding Daniel's 70th week, it corresponds with Revelation chapter 6. Also, we looked at Jesus answering the question. The disciples came to Jesus and said, tell us, when will these things be? When will be the end of the world? And what is the sign of your coming? And Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 gives what's known as the Olivet Discourse. And much of what we see in Revelation 6 was foreshadowed in Matthew chapter 24. Then we looked at the topic of the rapture and the day of the Lord and how that all fits in. And that's from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. So all of those laid the groundwork for us to now look individually and specifically at these six seals. So look with me here at Revelation 6 and look at verse number 1. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. So there's a, there is a supernatural, if not a supernatural effect on the natural order, so to speak. And there's a thunder that roars. And as the thunder roars, the Apostle John looks and he listens. And one of the four beasts, so as the thunder rolls, there's the sound of four beasts, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. Now, if I'm John, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come and I'm going to see. Let's see what's happening. In other words, he says, John, I'm about to show you something that's going to happen. And now in verse number two, and I saw... And behold, a, help me out, the first seal introduces us to the what? The white horse. The white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. So tell me what we've learned so far. Just in reading that, you tell me some things that we've observed, and what, uh, what made this white horse and the person sitting on him what are some themes surrounding this person? What do you notice about the, the one riding the white horse? What are, you, what are you seeing here? Okay, so the crown is going to have significance. Now, this is known as the victor's crown. There's different types of crowns that the, uh, the, the Greeks and the Romans would use this is a crown that signifies not reward, but victory, right? So this is, this is a, so there's a crown. What else do we notice? So what, what, so tell me, so tell me something about it here. So that's, so we've seen a crown, we've seen a bow. What else are we seeing in here? Crown, a bow, and then what is his, and he's a conqueror. So the, obviously the crown and the bow and the, he's got a weapon, he's going to be victorious, and he is a conqueror. So if you're just looking at this, thinking about what you know, what are the possibilities of who or what this could be referring to? What are some possibilities of who or what this first seal, this, this uh, white horse could be referring to? 
There's probably two possibilities. Who, who do we know is going to come on a white horse and conquer? Christ will come on a white horse and conquer. Could this possibly be a foreshadowing of Jesus who is yet to come? What say you? Think it could be? Okay. So you would think an angel? Yeah, no, that's that's a good, that's what we're doing. This. Let's think through it together here. I could just tell you, or we could kind of, you know, inductively study the scriptures together here. So, so one possibility, uh, Frank mentions this could be an angel. Also, we know there's, there's a figurative nature of, or there's a future prophecy of Christ coming on a white horse. Anything else? What's another possibility? Okay. Now, what happens next? So let, let's talk about the sequence here. So the first thing that happens is this, the, 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 the one who comes in the white horse and he conquers. But now the second one, if you look at verse number three, let's get a little ahead of ourselves. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red and power was given to take peace from the earth that they should kill one another. Then in the third, there's, you look down at verse number six, uh, uh, I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. Then the fourth, there's a pale horse with death and hell. So what's happening in the sequence here? Things are getting what? How are things progressing? In a favorable or unfavorable manner? They're getting worse, all right? Things are getting worse. So would that would that then, does that make sense for us to link the first, the first rider of the white horse with Christ? Does that match the chronology? When is Christ coming at a, on a white horse? When is that going to happen? That's going to happen at the very end. So that's taking place at the end. So I would say here, while some have seen this and they've said, well, you know what? This kind of reminds us a little bit of the coming of Christ on the white horse. It's, I don't think it can be referring to him. Because this is the beginning of a time of difficulty, a time of sorrow, a time of tribulation. This is the very beginning. Who else do we know of? And we looked at this a little bit last week. Who is the one who is going to be the world conqueror? It's going to be the Antichrist. And the significance of the white horse is that that was what a conqueror would ride on. That was a sign of victory. So they've got a crown of victory. They've got the horse of victory. He's got the he's got the bow in his hand. Yes, sir. Okay, that's a good point. If the lamb is opening the seal, he's probably not the one that's emerging from that first seal. That's potentially uh, that's a good point there as well. But remember what we looked at last week. Now in this, so he goes forth conquering and to conquer. If you look back at a passage we looked at last week, turn back to Daniel chapter 9. Back to Daniel chapter 9, and let's see this. We looked at this carefully last week, but I want to point something else out again here in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 9, in verse number 26. Well, we could back up to verse number 25. If you remember, we, we were looking at Daniel's 70th week. Look at verse 25. Know therefore and understand 
the going, that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. So how many is that? Seven plus threescore, sixty and two. Seven plus sixty-two is sixty-nine. There's sixty-nine weeks. Okay? The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Now, now look at what happens next. And the people of the, what's the word? Prince that shall come. So we see, if, in your Bible it may be capitalized, back in verse 25 is Messiah, the capital prince. He's going to be cut off. And then later on in verse number 26, there is another prince that shall come. And this prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end thereof will be a flood. And unto the end, the war, uh, unto the end of the war, desolations are deter- determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for how long? One week. And we didn't. We talked about this a lot last week, so I'm not going to rehash the entire thing. But the point is this: this prince who will come is not a good prince. He's an evil prince. You've got the prince of princes, the Messiah, who's cut off. Then sometime in the future, you have an evil prince who will come and he will be a conqueror. And at the end of his conquering, when he's when everybody is subdued, he's going to then make a covenant. He's going to make a covenant for one week, for seven years. He's going to establish his covenant. And if you're following the chronology back here in Revelation chapter 6, This seems to match that individual. He is the one who comes. There's a white horse. He has a bow. A crown is given unto him. He's looking very princely here. And he goes forth. He conquers. He conquers. So all of the nations come under the control of this one who rides on the white horse. Now, this one we know of as Antichrist. As he comes, he is the, he's the antichrist. He's the anti-prince. That means instead of. He's, you don't want to follow that prince, Jesus. You want to follow me. So he brings all of the world under one world government. And everything seems to be going fantastically. He's conquered. He's in control. There's a peace that's been established. He brings a worldwide peace. Paul writes about this a little bit as well. Go to 1 Thessalonians. Go to 1 Thessalonians in chapter number 5. In 1 Thessalonians, and in chapter 5, verse number 1, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, what's the words? Peace, safety, peace, safety. Then sudden destruction cometh upon them. As travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Jesus said the same thing. He warned, we looked at this in Matthew 24, that there would be a day coming where the peace would be broken. Daniel said he would confirm the covenant for a week, but in the middle of the week, he's going to break the covenant. So what you have now, 
back in Revelation chapter 6, is you have this wonderful conqueror on a white horse. How beautiful and how glorious it must look. And all the world is finally under control. But when they say peace and safety, there is no true peace. There is no true safety. Because the white horse is now replaced in verse number 3 with the second seal. And that is the red horse. So the white horse represents the Antichrist coming in, in his, uh, his supposed glory, the Antichrist coming as the conqueror, and he brings of temporary peace to the world. And we come now to verse number three. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. Now, I don't believe that these are two different individuals. I think what's happening here is you're seeing the two sides of this anti-prince, of this antichrist. First, you see him riding on a white horse. Then you see him revealing himself truly as he is. We saw that last week at the at some point, he's going to go into the temple. He's going to defile the temple. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, when you see that happening, you'd better run to the mountains. You better run to the hills. And so that's what's happening here. He says, this is what's going to take place. So I believe that what you see in the first seal is much of what's going to occur in the first half of what we know of as the tribulation period, as there's going to be this great conquering and there's going to be this this. Uh, this worldwide peace. But then as you come to the second seal and the red horse, the Antichrist reveals himself to be, reveals his true colors. And those are blood red. And he comes and there's power given to him. Notice the significance of verse number four. There went out another horse that was red and power was given to him. What do you think the significance of that is? I think that is significant right there. Power was given to him. What might be the significance of that statement? That phrase. That, that is a possibility. I would not debate that, really. That's possible. We don't, so these things aren't explicitly laid out. Could be that the, the Antichrist has delegated this power to someone to bring about this death and destruction. What else here? Yes, there are there are some kings. We'll see that. So um, this could be symbolic of a group of people. You're absolutely right. Patrick, what were you going to say? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Job is a good example. So regardless here, whether it's the Antichrist or something, I think the, 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 I think that the significance of power was given to him to, that sat there and to take peace from the earth is that who is orchestrating this judgment? Who is the, who is the one bringing this warfare? I think it's God Almighty. It's the Lord. Now, is there biblical precedent has God worked that way before? When? 
Well, in the Old Testament, when Israel was being judged, does anyone remember what God said he would do? When, he, when it was prophesied that Israel would be judged, he said he would bring the Babylonians. He would bring them. That he would use, in order to judge his people and, and bring them back, God said his judgment, he would enact it through these other world leaders. So when Nebuchadnezzar comes, when Nebuchadnezzar comes and invades Jerusalem and, that, and Jerusalem is sacked and people are carried away, who brought that judgment? Who was acting there? Was it Nebuchadnezzar? Yes. But was it only Nebuchadnezzar? No. It's the hand of God bringing judgment and he's using the actions of men. That's a difficult thing for us to understand, but it's really the key to really understanding all of what takes place in Revelation. This is the unfolding of God's judgment on the earth. And he's allowing the Antichrist, he's allowing these forces to bring about his judgment. So he says here that power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth. Now, does that mean that the, does that mean that these people are acting righteously? Oh, well, if I'm, if, if God is giving them the power, then does that vindicate what they're doing? No, of course not. But God is, in a sense, if you think of it this way, God is allowing mankind to receive what they have been plotting against themselves for all of history. Right. And he's allowing men's wickedness and the, and, and the, and the wickedness of the, of the fallen host to all come to full fruition. And though they will use evil actions, God will use that to bring his final judgment. Interesting. So some people have looked at this and said, well, this part of the of the this part of Revelation is the wrath of the Antichrist. Later on, it's the wrath of God. Well, no, because even the wrath of the Antichrist is a tool of Almighty to judge the earth. Okay? So now we come. And we see that there's a great warfare that's going to happen. That's the second seal. Now, the consequences of this unfold in the third seal in verse number five. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see. And I beheld and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. And see, thou hurt not the oil and the wine. What is taking place here? What is taking place with this black horse? Yeah? Well, we're going to see that later, so that could definitely come into play here. Yeah, involving the purchasing and selling the mark of the beast, potentially. So I think it's broader than that, but I, that could be a part of it. But what's that? Shortage of food. 7% December. <laughs> well, infl right, inflation, right? So you have shortages, you have 
You could have massive economic inflation. You could have all of these things taking place. And what's happening is people have lost their buying power. They've lost their ability to provide for themselves. Now, we see a measure of wheat for a penny, three measures of barley for a penny. The translation here, penny, is not like a penny like we think of it. All right? The way to understand this with the, 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 the penny is this. The, and also, what's the, what is the rider carrying? He's carrying scales in his hand, a balance. So he's got this, they're measuring it out. Oh, so when he says, would you like, um, would you like a measure of wheat? Would you like a measure, uh, would you like three measures of barley? Well, that will be a penny. Well, it doesn't sound so bad to us, right? Thinking of it in our modern economic concept. But really what's happened here is the penny is the Roman denarius, which is about a day's wages. It's a single silver coin. At the end of a day's wages at this time, You'd be given the denarius. You'd be giving. You'd be given the coin. Now, a whole day's wages. What you could buy, what you could do with a uh, a measure of wheat, or I should say, yeah, with a measure of wheat or three measures of barley, that would be enough of the wheat for one good meal. If you bought the barley, it would be enough for three good meals. So you might be able to work a whole day to do what? Just to eat. Just to eat. So the economic condition of the world has gotten to basic subsistence living at this point. It's a result of, so first he says, oh, there's great peace. I'm the conqueror. Then there's terrible war. And the result of the terrible war is terrible famine and shortage. But hurt not the oil and wine. I think what this means is this. There's plenty of oil and wine. The problem is what? You can't buy it. You can't, you can't access any of it because you can't afford it. So what's happening is these unfolding calamities or these unfolding tribulations that are taking place in the world. Before we move on, any questions, comments on that? Right. So if you put this in the context of the of the pre-tribulation rapture, that the rapture has already taken place, the that's going to create an economic disturbance as well. Um, now, we come to the fourth seal. And it's, again, getting progressively worse. Verse number seven. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, come and see. And I looked. And behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death. And hell followed with him. I think one thing we're learning here is that the riders on the horses are not always necessarily specific individuals, but the riders carry a theme with them. And the theme, the significance of the image of the fourth seal is this pale horse. I did a little study on this, and the, the word pale can refer to a, not, not a pale gray, but a pale green. It's actually the color. It's like a, just a sickly, ugly, deathly color, the pale horse. And power was given unto them 
over the fourth part of the earth. To kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. This is a gloomy Bible study, wouldn't you agree here? But look at what's taking place now. We come to this fourth, we come to the fourth rider, the fourth seal, the pale horse, and what is going to take place? In simple terms, you tell me what's going to happen here. And the simplest explanation is what? What is it? What's going to happen? Very specifically, what, did it, what does it say is going to happen? Yeah, what is that? You got it. One-fourth of the population on earth will die. This is after warfare, after famine. Now you have a fourth of the population, of the human population dying. Do we understand the significance of that? Right. And you're looking at, at this point, over a billion people perishing. And perishing in the most awful ways. Sword. There'll be, there'll be warfare and murder. Hunger. That's starvation. And with death, people will just die, of, I believe, of disease and in other situations. And then with the beasts of the earth. People will be killed by animals even. So this is, the world is, is falling into a state, as you read Revelation 6, again, this is a chronology, I believe. This is just a description of the, the unfolding of the entire seven years. You come to this, this fourth major section and just terrible death and destruction. There's a couple of references here. If you still have your Old Testament handy, you'll notice in Jeremiah, give you Jeremiah 30, in verse number 7. This isn't the first time this appears in the Bible. Isaiah 30 and verse 7. Actually, you can go back to verse number 6. Well, go back to verse 4. And these are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice trembling of fear and not of peace. Ask ye now and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail? And all faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. To remember, we looked at this last week as well, this tribulation period, the attention has been turned now away from the church. The church has been raptured and the attention is placed on Israel once again, this is Daniel's 70th week focused on the nation of Israel. If some of this is kind of getting past you, it's, it would be important for you to go back and listen to last week because that frames this. Also in Daniel chapter 12 and verse number 1. At that time, Daniel 12, a couple books forward if you're in Jeremiah, Daniel 12, 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. Now, Jesus would talk about it as well in Matthew 24. So that's four seals. 
Now we come to the fifth seal. And this one I find very interesting. The fifth seal is in verse number nine. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? So who are these individuals? So our attention is turned on the opening of the fifth seal. Our attention is turned from what's going on on planet earth to a group of people who are currently in heaven. They are in the presence of the Lord. These are the martyrs. These are the ones who have given their lives for the name of the Lord from, I believe, Old Testament and New Testament alike. These are people who have given their lives for the witness, the witness of the Lord. Among them are the prophets like Jeremiah. Among them are uh, the uh, people like Stephen. James, John's brother. If you remember, John's brother James was, a, was one of the first Christian martyrs as well. Herod had him killed. So I don't know if John saw his brother James in this crowd, but these are the ones, these are the ones who were martyred for their testimony. In verse number 10, they cry with a loud voice. It's interesting what they cry for. They cry for vengeance. They say, how long, Lord, holy and true, how long dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Now the attention goes back to the earth, right? Seal is opened. The the group of martyrs, they cry out, how long will the vengeance wait? God, how long will you wait to avenge our blood? And the Lord says, well, during this time, there's still a group on earth who are going to yet join you. So think about all that's happening through the seals. Conquering, then there's warfare. Then there's the, hor the, 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 the horse of the black horse, which is the famine and the, and the want. And there's the pale horse, which is death. And the fifth seal indicates that there will be a great martyrdom of those believers who are present in the tribulation. Now, you say, well, who will they be? I thought you said that the church will be raptured out. Yes. However, during that time, after the rapture of the church, what we'll see next week is there will be witnesses. There will be people who come to faith in the Lord during this tribulation, and they will spread the gospel. In fact, I was talking about this with Deborah. Matthew chapter 24 that we read last week, it's kind of interesting because it's like, well, who is Jesus talking to? He says, when you see this happen, when you see this happen, flee into the mountains, run. Like, well, if the church isn't going to be there, who is Jesus talking to in Matthew 24? Guess who he's talking to? He's speaking to Jewish people who will have these scriptures at this future date. And they will literally, there'll be a rapture, there'll be an antichrist, and they will, somebody will say, God will send witnesses that will say, Jesus predicted this in Matthew chapter 24. And they'll read Matthew chapter 24. And they'll flee and they'll come to faith. But then there'll also be a great martyrdom that takes place. And that's predicted through the fifth seal. Then we come to the, there's another reference you can look at and you can study that on your own in 2 Thessalonians. But now we come to this, the, the sixth of seven seals and that's where we, finish tonight.
Verse 12, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. If you remember, we saw this in the other passages last week. The earthquake, the sun, the moon, the stars of heaven. There will be supernatural calamities. People today talk about, they, they, they talk about things like climate change and they, uh, they speak of ice ages and floods and global warming and things like that, that. And they debate all of that. But these will be immediate instant calamities in the natural realm that are clearly supernaturally affected that people have never seen before. It's never been experienced in human history at this level. Verse 14, the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together and every mountain and island were moved out of their places and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men, every bondman, every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? We see in this final seal, this not final, the seventh one will be the final, but coming toward the end, we come to the sixth seal being opened, these natural calamities, and what of the people of the earth finally come to realize. They finally come to realize that God is judging the world. Isn't it amazing that it took them this long? That it takes to the very end where they see this? And even in this moment, rather than seek repentance, what do they seek? Well, it's not vengeance. What? There you go. First, they seek shelter. And when they realize that the shelter will not protect them, rather than throw themselves at the mercy of God, they say, we would rather just die. Let's just die. I think there's something interesting there that you find that um, about the heart of man. People say, well, how could, you know, how could a loving God send, send someone to hell? Or all of these questions. And I think... C.S. Lewis spoke about this, and, and that is this. There are, no people, there are no people in hell, there are no people experiencing the judgment of God who are saying, boy, I wish I had done it another way. Even the rich man in Lazarus, Lazarus, when the rich man is in hell and speaks with Abraham, he says, um, first he asks for comfort, he asks for relief, but then he says, he tells Abraham and Lazarus what to do. He says, do this, behave this way. He says, no, Father Abraham. There is this concept that what people desire, there is a desire in the human heart to be completely independent of God. It's only the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that can break through that. It's only the grace of Christ and the gospel that can break down the pride and break through the arrogance of the human heart that would cause us to finally say, God, I'm at your mercy. Please save me. But these men and women, 
that are described at the end, they've confirmed their judgment. They've, they've resigned to their fate. Hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So, as we conclude, what is the proper application of this text? What, what do we come away? And, and I think that a lot of times as people study the book of Revelation, they, they, they get focused on details that we don't even have. And I've experienced over the years people saying, well, you know, the, uh, look at this current event, and this could be this, and this can be that. And, and I, if you want to speculate, that's fine. But people are focusing on the details but I, that aren't even there, but I think are sometimes missing the biggest applications. When we read this, what are we supposed to come away with? What are you supposed to go home with tonight? when you read a passage of scripture like this. And I don't think there's one single answer. So I'm not looking for like, oh yeah, give me the right answer I'm looking for. You tell me, when you look at this, when we study this tonight, how should we, how should we leave here? What, what should be our state of mind or our action, etc.? I think there's multiple things. Somebody help me with that tonight. How, what do we take away from this? What's the application? Yeah, I think an application, that's a, that's a glorious application. Just to come away and say, God, this is what I deserve, but you've saved me from all of this. Right? Like I have been delivered from the destruction that I deserve. Wow. The, the, the Bible says, if you remember when we began the study months ago, there is a blessing for reading the book. We're supposed to read it and not just be like, oh, this is like, this is scary stuff. We're supposed to come away with a blessing and say, praise the Lord that we are not appointed unto wrath, but unto salvation. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your, your grace. What else do we come away with? What else should we come away with? Yeah? That's true. There should be a sense of sorrow, like you said, Frank, for those who, who, are, who reject. In fact, the Lord shares that sorrow. He says in the Old Testament that the Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. There is a sorrow, but then at the same time, I think there's another application that is we get, we've received a more, a more full picture of who God is. We're comfortable with the God of love and mercy, but our modern, our modern mind is, at least in the West, is very uncomfortable with a God of vengeance and justice, right? People look at the old, I've heard many times they look at the Old Testament and they say, oh, look at the wars in Israel, and I don't think I can believe that part of the Bible. And I say, well, have you read the parts in the New Testament? Because the book of Revelation makes anything that happened in the book of Exodus, Numbers, and in Joshua and Judges, the book of Revelation shows a picture of God that is far more to be feared. What else is an application we take away from this? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. 
that we all have to prepare to meet God. Right? It's appointed unto men, it's appointed unto men once to die, and after that, the judgment. So I think another one is we're to, we are told in the Bible to warn people. To warn. We are, the Bible says in the book of Jude that, and of some have compassion, making a difference. That's Jude, I think, 22, 23. And if some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. That we must remember as, as New Testament Christians that, yes, we need to present the love of God, but we also need to speak the word of a coming judgment to a world that doesn't want to hear it. And it's not a popular message, but it's a crucial message for them to hear to speak the truth in love. Flee from the wrath to come, the scripture says. So that's, a, that's an application for us. What else is an application for us from this? Yeah? Right. Right, we can save life, we can heal, we can have... Uh, we have control economically of our destiny. Throws it out the window. This this throws that false security out the window. I think so. I think another application is what are we living for? You know, what are the what are the core values of our lives as Christians? Peter would say, seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? Like, how should you live knowing where this is all headed? It should change everything about it. That's why the Bible said there's a blessing to studying this. But it change our perspective completely. Any other thoughts before we conclude? Yeah. Severity? Yeah. Right, the the severity of our offense against God and our sin, that from the and but but God has been consistent in His revelation to mankind from the beginning. God has been so gracious that He has never, He has always tried. I shouldn't say tried. He's always clearly shown mankind how severe sin is. We have been the ones that have just wanted to gloss over it. But He's from the very beginning. Adam and Eve had to leave the garden. An animal had to be killed. A sacrificial system was put in place. Temple ordinances were put in place. The, the very Son of God came and was crucified to pay for our sins. And yet we persist in our, in our flagrant, flagrant sin. So, yeah, I think that's a really good point. This shows us in vivid display that God takes the offense of sin very seriously. And so, as Christians, we ought to be sober-minded people. We rejoice, we celebrate, there's wonderful things, but also there's a sobriety to realize what we were, who we are, and what God has done for us, how He saved us. And that ought to change us and motivate us. And those are the six seals of seven. Next week, we'll go into chapter number seven, and uh, we'll move through this, the rest of the material pretty quickly, Lord willing. Um, and so I promise you, we won't spend months and months here in the book of Revelation. Maybe 
maybe a, a couple of months, we'll get through it and um, and learn the lessons. Yes. Just one last Yeah. And uh, he, he told me, he said, you know, when I bring this to the people in Papua New Guinea, they, they're not, they weren't third world, they were like 12th world people. The whole idea that Jesus would come and take them to heaven was it's exciting. Yeah. They, they had nothing. They lived in huts. And they hear about this city, you know, uh, the streets are gold. Yeah, and for those people there, really, and, and when Terry Taylor was in Papua New Guinea, it was more volatile than it even is now. There was when I was a kid, he, there were tribal warfares. Their life, their life was more resembling of what we're reading about in Revelation than it is what we experience. And so, to them, the idea of a rapture is a that is a cool picture, though. Uh, you have it here, still. Is it there? You should bring it down for everybody to look at after, because that's a that's a. Oh. Well, go ahead. You can get a tour and you can see that picture. There's not a whole lot of you here tonight, anyway. So if you want to see it, yeah, we'll do it. Give me that. We'll we'll put it up next week. So, um, and if you're watching live stream, we didn't get all the audio of all this conversation. So you've got to get here in person to be, get the full experience. So that's my plug to get you here. Um, but that's good Bible study tonight. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, so much. Let's uh, close in prayer, and then we will uh, we'll receive our prayer requests tonight. Lord, we love you and thank you for your plan of redemption and salvation. Lord, we just thank you so much that you've delivered us, you've saved us from the wrath to come. Help us to be a grateful people and help us to be uh, just completely, Lord, consumed by your will and your direction. Help us to be bold in our witness to those around us. Use us to reach others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.